Hello and welcome. I am Piers Ridyard, CEO of the Decentralized Finance Protocol Radix, a public ledger entirely focused on bringing DeFi into the mainstream. This is our podcast, The DeFi Download, a show about decentralized finance and all things crypto, where we dive into the details of the projects, assets and services that are powering the DeFi revolution. Today, I am joined by Long Wang, co-founder and CTO of REN, a protocol that brings interoperability to decentralized finance by creating a special trustless network for the custody of private keys. Prior to founding REN, with his co-founder Tai, Long built programming languages for supercomputers. Long, thank you so much for coming on our show. Thanks so much for having me, Piers. It's great to be here. So uh, first of all, I just think some congratulations are in order, right? You guys have successfully released RenVM to mainnet. And I think looking at Twitter, you guys also just crossed the $30 million total volume mark, right? Yeah, I think we're actually at 33 million right now. Um, So we've, uh, we launched about a month ago. And so we're averaging about $1 million in volume per day, which is, uh, you know, we're absolutely stoked with um, for the first month of our launch. That's amazing. And uh, like, how are you guys feeling? Like, how's how's the team feeling about everything? Really great. I mean, I think seeing such uh, big adoption is a is a huge motivator for everyone involved. Uh, so, you know, we worked so hard on this for for two years uh, to see it finally come to fruition, and uh, to really fill the the need that we thought it was going to fill has been very satisfying. So, what's what's been driving what's been driving that volume? What's been the sort of the key use cases that you're seeing um, sort of being used on the REN network? So this is actually quite a funny one. Um, I think about 18 months ago, the REN team teamed up with Kyber and BitGo to create WBTC, which yeah. is a, a centralized uh, tokenized version of Bitcoin on Ethereum. Yeah. And uh, now 18 months later, we've produced RENBTC, which is sort of a decentralized version with a, a much nicer UX and all of the sort of decentralized properties that you want in, a, in yeah. a blockchain. And the biggest use case so far has actually been a better way to get WBTC. <laughs> so what people are, are dominantly doing is they're taking their Bitcoin and they're using RenVM to turn it into RenBTC and they're doing a one-to-one swap for it for WBTC because they're essentially the same asset. And right. then they're taking that WBTC and they're using it in, in DeFi sort of as per usual. Right. Uh, and this is because WBTC has been around for 18 months. There's like tons of volume uh, for it. And so it's, it's already hooked into all of these DeFi protocols. So in terms of utility, it's much easier to work with WBTC right now because it's already proven itself. And so it's already tapped into these uh, protocols. Right. So WBTC is wrapped BTC that is, is custodied by, by BitGo. And that was sort of principally adopted by the DeFi space, right? As like just collateral in Uniswap and, and abilities to sort of put it into Compound and stuff like that. Like how's how was that initial, why did you guys decide we're not going to go like, 18 months ago, we're going to not wait for RenVM, not wait for our mainnet. We're just going to go ahead and, and put this into the market. What was the sort of the rationale behind that decision and not just waiting for RenVM? So I think if you were to imagine a world without WBTC right now, RenBTC probably wouldn't be where it is after one month because right. there wouldn't be a strong utility for RenBTC because uh, understandably protocols like MakerDAO, for example, they need to see sort of viability in the real world for an extended period of time. Because even if the theory is perfect, there can be practical issues. You know, there might be right. bugs, there might be problems with the implementation. Right. Uh, and so there has to be, you know, some period of time that you wait for the network to mature and prove its worth. Uh, and so it would take several months before you would see something like RenBTC adopted into MakerDAO. But because WBTC has already been around for so long, it's already sort of proven itself in that respect. And mm. BitGo is obviously a very respected uh, custodian in this space. Mm. 
So by starting WBTC 18 months ago, we gave it a big runway to sort of tap into the DeFi ecosystem and, and get absorbed into these different protocols and get used and sort of get out there. And then now that we can bring RenBTC into the market, people can sort of use it as a conduit for uh, these protocols that WBTC is already part of. And so we kind of get to bootstrap off of all the hard work that uh, the community has put into adopting WBTC. And then over the coming months, we'll see a transition slowly towards using RenBTC directly because it's just simply more efficient, obviously. You don't have to do sure. an extra swap, which means it's less gas. You're not relying on RenBTC to WBTC liquidity and, and you can avoid fees from doing that kind of trade. And what was the... so? Like, there's obviously more to it than just be like, it would be a good idea to have wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum. There's a, you know, you can say that and go, yeah, sure, that sounds like a good idea. But like deciding to direct a team to do something that isn't developing your underlying technology directly, but instead developing the commercial interests and the and the adoption of the of the token. And then there's this gap between going, this is a good idea and actually validating it's a good idea and, and getting to the point where you're like, you know, this is absolutely strategically the right thing to do. And we know that it's definitely going to be used for X, Y, Z in at least this kind of volume for us to justify doing it. Can you talk a little bit about that process of how you came to that decision in, in the team? And then like, what was the time frame involved in sort of like thinking about it to actually doing it? And like, how did you, how did you split the focus and, and make sure that the team was able to not get too distracted by sort of the success of that underlying thing um, from actually sort of developing the, 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 so the, the longer term goal of, of delivering RenVM and the Ren network? Sure. So, I mean, I guess this is one of the beauties of collaborative initiatives. Um, and certainly Kyber and BitGo had a huge role to play, bigger so than Ren, I, I would say, uh, in the initial development of, of uh, WBTC. And so I guess when you get three teams come together and, you know, Kyber says, we think that something like WBTC would be super beneficial for our project because then people can get exposure to the BTC price on Kyber, which is obviously beneficial for them. Mm. Uh, and then BitGo can expand its offerings, which is obviously beneficial for them. Uh, mm. As the custodian, they're the one generating the fees. Mm. And then as as Ren, we sort of had this vision sort of, you know, 18 months into the future where we saw what is now coming about, coming about. And, and we sort of anticipated that this would happen a little while ago. And so all three of these teams saw benefit in this. And I think it was only really a few weeks of going back and forth around how we might go about this and what the best ways to do it would be before we really started digging in and, and building it. And the beauty of WBTC is that it's, it's relatively simple, um, technically speaking. You know, it's, it's really just an ERC-20 contract with a mint and burn function that only BitGo can call. Mm. At the core, that's really all it is. So, so mm. technically, it's very, very simple. And there was very little effort required into building uh, the project. And then once mm. it kicked off, really Kyber and, and BitGo took the reins and did a lot of the initial adoption for WPTC and, and sort of community management. And now that RenVM is um, ready and in the market, we can start leveraging the community and sort of giving back to it as well. Um, because obviously now we're able to make WPTC that much more accessible. So it's sort of a mutually beneficial relationship. And, and I don't think RenBTC will ever, you know, uh, defeat <laughs> WPTC, if you will. And I don't think they're competitors because at the end of the day, people will want WBTC for some use cases and they'll want RenBTC for other use cases. Um, and what we're seeing right now is that one of the key use cases for RenBM is it has an amazing UX. Um, mm. So you can integrate with DeFi protocols 
using just a single Bitcoin transaction and everything else happens underneath the hood, which is really, really awesome for the user. They don't have to think about wrapping and unwrapping. They don't have to, they don't even have to spend gas on Ethereum if they don't want to. So mm. there's actually an integration out there right now where you can take RenBTC. BTC, you can, uh, oh, sorry, you can take BTC from the Bitcoin blockchain mm. uh, and you can end up with WBTC inside MakerDAO using just a single Bitcoin transaction which is a really mm. powerful thing to do. Now, now, underneath the hood, what's actually happening is that you're turning it into RenBTC and then you're turning that RenBTC into WBTC and then you're putting that WBTC into MakerDAO. Mm. But the user is not exposed to any of that. Sure. And they don't even have to work with the ETH gas. So I think um, we saw that there would be a huge benefit really for how we get RenBTC to market. And Kaiba saw a huge benefit for what we'd be able to do for the users of their platform and the price exposure their users could get. And BitGo obviously saw a big um opportunity for the fees that they could generate and, and the offerings that they, their platform could provide. And so when you have three people all with enough motivation, it kind of just, it's inevitable for this thing to come about. So what was, what is the, what is the different use cases for REN BTC versus WBTC? Why is REN BTC not just a direct sort of replacement to WBTC? <laughs> um, the most obvious example off the top of my head is that big institutions probably want to be able to sue somebody if something goes wrong. <laughs> Uh, you can't sue a decentralized network. <laughs> um. I mean, this goes. This definitely goes into some of my questions about sort of the security guarantees and security limitations of of, of the REM protocol. But um, yeah, yeah I, maybe I, the more polite way of saying that is that um, some of these big institutional players they like having relationships um, with the parties that they're working with, and and I, I do mean that in a more sincere way. And so it's not just about yeah. you know being able to sue someone when something goes wrong, but being able to get support and be able to get you know, all of the advantages that having a direct relationship with a centralized entity can give you. Um, right. And that's just not something you can do with um, with a decentralized protocol like RenBM. That's really cool. So, I mean, you originally started out with a different hypothesis, right? You guys started out building Republic Protocol. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what you were building there and why? Sure. So that was actually how we started. And back then, we identified the need in the DeFi space for a dark pool. You know, so we had... Uh, all of these centralized financial uh, technologies being built on the blockchain uh, and DEXs were just starting to become, you know, more popular and more of a thing. And it was kind of obvious that the space was going to move in that direction. And that one of the big missing features was that we had centralized dark pools and we had OTC desks, but we didn't have decentralized dark pools, which, you know, is just gives you all the goodness of a decentralized. So just for the benefit of the listener, what is a dark pool and why is it important? Uh, a dark pool is just a way, it's basically an exchange where the order book is completely hidden. And the reason why that's a good idea is that if you want to sell $100 million of Bitcoin, ideally you want to do that without affecting the price. But if you suddenly put $100 million of Bitcoin on the books, that's a huge signal to the market that there's a, you know, a, mm. uh, a price drop that's going to be coming. And that's going to obviously negatively impact you. And, and the same is true if you go to buy $100 million of Bitcoin. So. Mm. In order to keep the best price, you want to kind of keep your intent hidden until the order has already executed and settled. And that's the, mm. the intent behind a dark pool. And so we went ahead and we built this. And we built it using um, sort of privacy uh, computation uh, technology. And we, we actually got that to mainnet and we really struggled to gain adoption. And the key reason for that was at that time, BTC really was the only thing where there was the kind of volume where you really needed a dark pool. Right. Um, and the kind of volume we were seeing was BTC to USDT or to right. ETH sometimes. And all of these were on different chains. Well, Bitcoin was on, on Omni right. Protocol. But 
these um, were not interoperable with each other. And so we were like, well, we have to solve this problem. Uh, and when we developed a solution for it, we realized this is so much bigger than dark pools. Every single uh, DeFi application, every single application, every single chain can really advantage from generic interoperability in the way that we had designed it. And so we sort of evolved the protocol into that and said, well, this is a much bigger problem to have solved and it is much more valuable. Uh, someone else can come along and build a dark pool using this technology later if they so desire, but the ability to give interoperability to the ecosystem is just so much high value for everybody involved. There was a, please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but there was an interim step there, right, of going from a single dark pool to multi-dark pools because you guys realized, I suppose, two things. I, it seems to be two things, one being different dark pools might want different rule sets and um, as well as sort of you needing to do different assets, right? Yeah, that's, that's basically what was the thought process there. Instead of trying to create something at the application layer, creating something at the protocol layer upon which others could build applications and sort of customize them to their needs. A lot of that was around regulatory concern. You know, obviously operating a dark pool is um, going to be vastly different depending on which um, place you're in in the world. And in order to let the protocol service as many people as possible, we needed to make it as generic as possible in, in that regard. So does that mean that the sort of like the in, in the foundational building of, of REN, there's also this concept of, of third-party programmability of assets within the system as well? Absolutely. So something that is not available uh, generally yet, as in you can't actually take advantage of on the system, but it does exist, is the ability to program general purpose programs on REN VM. Mm. So you could actually, in theory, you could deploy a smart contract directly to REN VM. Uh, to execute arbitrary logic. And, and maybe this is how you might want to go about building a dark pool in, in years to come. Uh, but mm. we were definitely focusing on this interoperability aspect first. And then mm. once we've achieved that and we've really gotten that to market, we can enable that smart contract capability upon RenVM itself. And the reason we're kind of staging it is one, so that we can keep focused because mm -hmm. focus is, you know, it's critical. Yep. Um, but also so that we aren't putting ourselves in a position where we're trying to compete with the existing people in the space. There's a lot of awesome projects out there and... They already exist today, yeah. uh, and there's no reason trying to create a whole new ecosystem. The whole point of interoperability is to connect everyone together. Um, yep. And so we really want to begin there. And we felt like having smart contracting capabilities from the word go would kind of interfere with that, that mission statement. That makes sense. I, and it sort of like brings to mind an analogy that a friend of mine um, said to me once, which is like, Piers, starting a business is like starting a fire. If you have a, uh, if you've got a lighter <laughs> and a load of logs, and if you move the lighter between the logs continually, you never start the fire. You only start the fire by concentrating on one log to start off with uh, and holding the flame under there for long enough for it to catch. And I was like, that's a, that's a great analogy. That is a great analogy. Because then once it catches, you can pile on all the other logs. Exactly. Um, so how does this differ? Like you, we talked about interoperability a couple of times and that word's been mentioned. And I think that it's sort of used in a very vague amorphous sense, right? Like Cosmos talks about interoperability. Polkadot talks about interoperability. Ren talks about interoperability. So like how does what Ren's doing differ from the other approaches? And like what, what is the, what's the fundamental sort of philosophy you guys have brought to this? So we talk about a thing called universal interoperability, and this is how we try to distinguish between the various forms of interoperability out there. Now, technically speaking, as the word implies, interoperability is just any ability for two things to interoperate, to operate together or to talk to each other in some way. So the way that Cosmos does this is they define a, an agreed protocol, and they say if everyone speaks this protocol, then they can talk to each other. Mm -hmm. But if you don't speak that protocol, you're kind of out of luck. 
right? So mm -hmm. Cosmos chains can talk to each other, but they can't talk to Ethereum without some other different interoperability protocol at play. And they certainly mm -hmm. can't talk to, to Bitcoin. Um, Polkadot does something similar, pretty much in, this, in the same sort of high level concept. There's an agreed upon protocol. And if you speak that protocol, then you can talk to everyone else who speaks that protocol. But if you're trying to talk to Cosmos or you're trying to talk to Ethereum or you're trying to talk to Bitcoin or many of the other chains out there, then you're out of luck and you, you need a different interoperability protocol. Then there's things like oracles, which you could even think of as interoperability. You know, you're, you're getting information from price or you're getting price fees of assets that aren't necessarily on your chain, things like right. USD. I mean, that's an asset not on chain. So that's some form of interoperability, but that's very limited. You know, you're just getting a price feed and there's only so much you can do with that. Then there's things like atomic swaps, which allow you to swap one asset on one chain for, in exchange for another asset on another. And you kind of get to guarantee that the swap happens in full or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that's very limited. You know, it's, it's only limited to the case of swapping. Uh, you can't actually build, you know, arbitrary logic there. Mm -hmm. So the way that we talk about interoperability with RenVM is that it's it's universal. So it can support any blockchain. So mm -hmm. we have uh, Bitcoin on Ethereum, but we also actually have Zcash on Ethereum and Bitcoin Cash on Ethereum as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and we are just prototyping now the ability to put Bitcoin, Zcash and Bitcoin Cash on substrate chains as well. And even more importantly, the ability for substrate chains to talk to Ethereum chains mm -hmm. uh, or the the Ethereum chain. And you can move an asset between all three of these. So maybe you move some Bitcoin to Ethereum and then you move it to Substrate and then you move it back to, to Bitcoin again. Substrate being? Uh, Polkadot, any, any Polkadot chain. Right. Um, so networks like Akala, Edgeware, these kind of chains. Mm -hmm. um, and they're sort of new and up and coming uh, given that Polkadot only, only launched, I think, two months ago. Um, and the other thing about universal interoperability is that it really can be used for any use case. So when you put RenBTC onto Ethereum, you can use it for anything as long as obviously the protocol accepts that as an ERC-20. Mm. Um, so you could put it onto MakerDAO, you could put it to Compound, you could put it onto Uniswap. It really doesn't matter what the uh, protocol, uh, sorry, what the application that you're trying to interact with is. And we actually envision a future where a single application might actually span multiple chains simultaneously mm -hmm. in order to take advantage of the different features that the different chains offer for mm -hmm. various parts of the application that might need those features. Uh, and so this is kind of really what sends RenVM apart is that, RenVM supports any token, any chain for any particular application. It's not only for a certain set of chains. It's not only for a certain type of asset. And it's not only for a special, specific type of application. And where do you see the logic for that application principally living? Like, where does it make most sense to live? Because obviously, you've got the executable logic and then you've got the calls. And the calls can be cross-chain, fine. But there, there needs to be a thing that essentially is coordinating overall the, the logic of the execution, the logic of the of the application that you're actually running. So like in that vision, long-term vision of, of an end state of true, truly composable cross-chain interoperability, like where does that logic sit? I would imagine that that logic sits dominantly uh, where the asset is native to. So for example, you might imagine, uh, and you could take advantage of features elsewhere. So you might imagine that maybe on Ava, you get super high transactions per second. Mm -hmm. And so you might actually be able to build a full-on limit order book on Ava reasonably. Mm -hmm. But the assets that you're trying to control actually live on Ethereum typically, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe they live on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so you might have the high-speed parts of your application happening on a chain that supports high-speed transaction throughput, but mm -hmm. then the actual settlement needs to happen on another chain so that people can keep the actual asset. Because the reality is when, when I buy Bitcoin or when someone buys Bitcoin, really they, they want Bitcoin. They don't want mm -hmm. a tokenized representation of Bitcoin on another chain. Mm -hmm. And the tokenized representation should only live on that chain while it needs to, you know, mm -hmm. while it's 
being secured for settlement. So, you know, obviously if you open an order on another chain, then you have to send the Bitcoin over with that order to make sure that that Bitcoin really is there and that it can't be, you know, sent somewhere else while the order is still alive. And then if the mm-hmm. order gets cleared and it's time to settle, then the Bitcoin goes back to the Bitcoin chain, but it goes to the person that, that purchased it. Um, and so this is sort of how I would see things uh, coming about. Interesting. So you sort of, you see the safest place for the asset to live long-term is always going to be on the native chain uh, and Ren as this way of, of creating essentially settlement, right? So it's a, set, it's a settlement, it's a cross-chain settlement layer. Yeah, it's, it's the way of moving the asset to where it needs to be. And if the asset's not actively being used for something, then it should be on its home chain mm-hmm. uh, because that is the safest place for it to be. Because no matter what, even if you imagine a perfect interoperability protocol that it was impossible to break, you're always at least compounding the security risks of the actual chain and the chain that it's living on. So if you have Bitcoin on Ethereum, you're exposed to Bitcoin risk, you know, of the Bitcoin network failing in some way, but you're also exposed to Ethereum risk and the the Mm -hmm. Ethereum blockchain failing in some way. Mm -hmm. And then obviously in practice, you're then also exposed to the interoperability protocol failing in some way. So you're compounding these risks when your asset lives away from home. And, And there's no way to avoid that. That's just fundamental to the idea of having multiple points of failure. Yeah, it's um, it's not quite the same concept, but I think it amounts to the same thing from a statistical point of view. Like um, in the book Crossing the Chasm, there's this concept of ecosystem risk, which is like if the probability of doing a thing is reliant on three partners, then the probability of it succeeding is the probability of it closing with with any one partner multiplied together to each other. And well, so, no, that's, like, that, that's a perfect analogy. That that's exactly how it works. So then you end up like you know your you know probability of failure on Ethereum. 0.01% probability of failure on Ren 0.01% but like if you compound all these together you end up actually ending up with a a, a worryingly high probability and higher than you'd necessarily expect it to be that's right and so you know it's always going to be safer to have the asset on its on its home chain there's other reasons for that as well which are actually more subtle so if you imagine all of the bitcoin moved onto ethereum suddenly the miners aren't making any fees on the bitcoin chain yeah. so there's a much lower so you've actually in you've actually increase the risk of the Bitcoin chain inherently by moving the assets away from it. Um, and that yeah. can be a very dangerous thing. Yeah, I think, I think. I mean, this is a complete rabbit hole, but like the whole like uh, re- reduction of mining rewards on Bitcoin and what that means for, for <laughs> the security of the network is a su- super interesting topic for debate at some of the time. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, just sort of going back to the next line of experiments you guys are now running, you've, you've, you've just started uh, WBTC Cafe, right? So what is WBTC Cafe? So WBTC Cafe is just a super easy way to turn your Bitcoin into WBTC or to turn your WBTC back into Bitcoin. It's just there as a, a, a better user interface with no central party involved, no excess fees being added. You're literally just paying the fees that you have to pay for the underlying networks. So obviously the Bitcoin transaction fees and the RenVM network fees, but there's nothing else. Um, and it's just just plain and simple. It's just the easiest way to get WBTC and the easiest way to turn WBTC back into normal BTC. And what what have you guys learned so far from it? Um, well, it's kind of interesting. So when you build an interoperability protocol, something like RenVM doesn't exist outside of RenVM. Uh, it's mm-hmm. the first of its kind. Um, and so really there's a lot of new best practices to learn and understand. And I guess when, if we think back, you know, even just two or three years, 
everyone was trying to get used to how to even interact with the blockchain, you know, and mm. there was all the sort of best practices that had to be developed for both users and developers in order to make sure that user experiences were safe and um, easy. And not just safe in the sense that, you know, Ethereum is safe, but safe in the sense that you don't accidentally convince your user to do something they shouldn't have done um, and make it as hard as possible for them to make a mistake. And I think that's where our biggest learnings have happened is with this completely new paradigm at play, naturally you're going to see new best practices form. Mm. And, okay, sure. But from the point of view of actually sort of launching this as a service and interfacing with the customer, like what what have you, what, what was um, discovered from the customer using it? Like, have you found that people are using it in weird ways and you're getting strange errors and that people are sort of like mistakenly doing things that you didn't think that they would? Or has it been completely smooth sailing as soon as you put it up, it worked? Um, I mean, so RenVM itself has had absolutely zero downtime. So yep. it has performed perfectly. Um, we have had a, had several instances of user error, but they make up less than 1% of, of transactions. So we have some users, uh, occasionally they'll replace their transactions with new transactions with different fees, um, mm. and that can confuse the UI. Right. Um, RenVM has no problem with it, but the UI kind of gets confused and doesn't know which transaction is the real one. And then obviously one of them gets shuffled away and the other one stays around. Um, and we've also had cases where users have not been sure which address to put into which place. So suddenly when you're dealing with two chains yep. um, and you're saying, oh, you know, you which address do you want to receive your funds at? Um, and they put in the wrong address, that can obviously be disastrous. Right. Um, we Obviously, we try to put as many um, you know, warnings and as like, you know, very clearly saying, put your Bitcoin address here, but putting all sorts of uh, extra validation uh, in place has sort of really helped make that smoother. And like, how are you guys, how are you guys thinking about growing um, adoption um, for the assets that you've already integrated? So now that you've got WBTC working as a completely decentralized asset using the REN network, do you sort of very much going, well, the community is going to pick this up and they're going to use it in the ways that they do? Or do you guys have a, a strategic focus on how you can build sort of volume and, and transactional um, demand for, for that asset? Yeah. So, I mean, we definitely have a strategic plan there. Um, in the lead up to uh, the launch of Mainnet, we announced the REN Alliance, which is a group of, I think it's now going to more than 60 uh, different partners of various blockchains, various DeFi applications, even just news, out, uh, news outlets, uh, or analytics platforms. Uh, and the REN Alliance is really just a group of people who understand the mission of having universal interoperability, understand the value there, and are, are committed to helping that mission in some way, whether that be through helping educate the community, whether that be through helping develop RenVM itself, or whether that be adopting RenVM. And so now that we're live on Mainnet, we've started working with these partners to integrate REN assets into their platform. Um, and, and of course, that takes time. There's lots of development that has to happen for those different partners and then, you know, auditing has to happen and some of these people need to wait, um, of course, for, uh, you know, RenVM to be around for longer than a month to, you know, empirically verify the theory. But uh, yeah, over the, over the coming months, we should see many more integrations that are in the pipeline right now uh, coming to fruition, uh, along with various incentive programs to help users bootstrap liquidity into those platforms. Okay, so um, let's let's dive a little bit into the technology. Um, so what is happening with RenVM under the hood? So what actually happens is really what RenVM is doing is it's acting like a decentralized custodian. So mm. when you want a tokenized representation of Bitcoin on some other chain, uh, 
you've got to send that Bitcoin to RenVM for RenVM to keep it locked up. And the reason you need to do that is at any point, if someone wants to redeem that tokenized representation, they won't be able to get back the underlying Bitcoin. So there has to be a one-to-one backing there or, or a mm-hmm. peg, as it's mm-hmm. typically called. And so RenVM has to keep those assets safe. And mm-hmm. the way that it does this is it uses a piece of cryptography called a secure multi-party computation. So mm-hmm. we researched and developed our own unique uh, MPC algorithm specifically mm-hmm. to work in the kind of Byzantine globally distributed environments that you see with blockchains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what this can do is it can perform arbitrary computations in secret. And mm-hmm. by in secret, I mean that no one can see the data that's involved. And the reason this helps with interoperability is suddenly you can generate and manage private keys. And you can do this in a way that no one can see what the private key is, not even the network itself. So no one in the network can see the private key and no one in the network can use the private key unless the rest of the network sort of agrees with them and says, yep, we're also happy to use the private key for this purpose. Mm-hmm. And that allows you to create a uh, custodian that says, mm-hmm. we'll take custody of the funds into this uh, private key that no one knows, so no one can steal any money from it. And then when the time is right, when someone's burned a tokenized asset and they want to redeem the underlying Bitcoin, the network can authorize the use of that private key to sort of send them those funds. So let's let's sort of go down the next level. There's um, your... Let's start with just the concept of what is a private key. So what is a private key and how does it work from the point of view of, valid, of, of submitting a transaction? So a private key is kind of like a blockchain's equivalent of a password, right? This is the thing that allows you to authorize the spending of money from a particular address. Yeah. So when you send Bitcoin to an address, there exists some private key that is allowed to spend money from that address, Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea is that it's private. So you shouldn't show it to anyone because whoever has access to it has the ability to spend the, that money. Mm-hmm. And so how does a secure multi-party computation generate a private key that no one computer actually has access to, but collectively can create, can be able to use that password? So like in sort of layman's terms, how can I create a password that I don't know on my own, but I know together uh, with other people. Sure. So a great the example that I use is a line. So imagine that your private key is being represented as a line in space, a complicated line, not a straight line. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can imagine it as a straight line for a very simple example. So imagine your private key is a straight line in space. Mm-hmm. If I gave you one point on that line, it doesn't really tell you anything, right? Like there is an infinite number of straight lines that go through that point. Mm-hmm. But the moment I give you two points on the line, suddenly you know the entire line everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Because there's only one line, one straight line that goes through two points. Mm-hmm. So by having two points, you now know everything you need to know. And this this holds the more complicated the line gets. So if you have a super squiggly line, you might need a hundred points in order to know what that line looks like everywhere. And so this is exactly the process. We, we take a line, we encode it as a, sorry, we take a private key and we mm-hmm. encode it as a, a complicated line. And we mm-hmm. give out a point on that line to every single node in the network. And individually, these points on the line don't mean anything, but mm-hmm. by collaborating with others, you can actually manipulate that line in uh, different ways uh, to, to do things like authorized spending. Uh, and one important thing is that you don't ever actually have to reconstruct the line. So at no point do you ever actually have to see the line in order to use it. You can actually just manipulate it by just manipulating your individual points. Um, so if we sort of take this one step further, um, We've we've had a secure multi-party computation process happen to generate a private key on the Bitcoin network, which is custodied by the Ren 
uh, network. And uh, let's say that 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 private key controls uh, 10 Bitcoin. Um, now, I as a user uh, who have got some wrapped Ren BTC on Ethereum wants to spend some of that BTC. I want to send it from my Ethereum held wrapped BTC and end up getting the underlying BTC that is currently custodied under that private key on the REN network. Could just talk me through the sort of what the process that's actually happening there is. Sure. So you have your REN BTC on Ethereum and your REN BTC is an ERC20 like any other ERC20, right? It conforms to exactly the same standards with the sole exception that it has a burn function. Mm-hmm. And this burn function basically just removes the REN BTC from existence. Mm-hmm. And when you call this function, you're also required to specify a Bitcoin address. Mm-hmm. So you can burn that REN BTC on Ethereum. And at the same time, you specify a Bitcoin address. Now, typically this would be your Bitcoin address, but it doesn't actually have to be. This could be the Bitcoin address of someone you're trying to send the REN BTC to. And you want, you know, you want it to arrive to them as real Bitcoin, not as REN Bitcoin. So any, any Bitcoin address will do. So you do that, you burn it out of existence. Mm-hmm. And then you wait for a certain number of confirmations on Ethereum. So mm-hmm. obviously the transaction that does the burning sits in a block on Ethereum. And once it's a certain number of blocks deep, we can be very certain or probabilistically certain that this transaction is not going to shuffle away. You know, it's mm-hmm. going to stay there on the Ethereum blockchain forever. And once we get to that point, you can show the transaction to RenVM. You say, look at this transaction and see mm-hmm. that I burned RenBTC out of existence. Mm-hmm. And each of the nodes individually verifies that. They look at it and they say, yep, that checks out. It mm-hmm. definitely was a real transaction. It definitely burned this amount of Bitcoin and you definitely did specify this Bitcoin address and it's 30 blocks deep. So mm-hmm. we're pretty sure it's not going to uh, get shuffled away. So mm-hmm. I will contribute the little bit of work that I need to contribute to in order to give you the respective amount of Bitcoin to the address that you specified. And I do my little bit of work uh, to make that happen. And if all of the dark nodes... Um, all the nodes powering RenVM sort of agree that this actually did happen, then they'll all do their little bit of work. And at the end of the, uh, at the end, what you have is the Bitcoin transferred uh, to the specified address. So are the nodes on the Ren network running both Ethereum and Bitcoin? Yeah. So they have to be able to um, watch both networks. Yeah. Watch or validate? Um well, in theory, both. So when we say watch, obviously, they have to be able to watch and, and validate in some way. So when you run a node, you can configure that node to look at any node that you, uh, any Ethereum or Bitcoin node that you like. So you can run your own, yeah. uh, which is going to do validation. You could run a light client to save right. on costs, or you could point it at a hosted API. And as long as all the dark nodes are doing approximately different things, then everything is fine. Right. And so the dark nodes are responsible for their own information feed from that point of view. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And we're actually doing some research and development to see. Uh, so even a light client is actually more than you need in RenVM. So we're, we're doing some R&D to see how, how light can you really make a light client when you sure. know that it's only being used in the context of RenVM. Got it. And um, once all the nodes, it, and is it all the nodes in the network? So do all of the nodes in the network possess part of the um, multi-party computation uh, required to validate the transaction, or is it just a subsection that that control those? Um, so the, the this is where it gets this is where it gets a little uh, complicated. So there's actually 
every node does control part of a private key, but there's actually mm -hmm. multiple private keys at play. So right. you take the network and you actually section it up into different shards of, of 100 different nodes, and yep. each group of 100 is responsible for a different private key, uh, and they're constantly shuffling. So uh, these nodes are constantly changing, and the underlying private keys are also constantly changing, and sort of, you know, you're generating a new one for a new group of 100, and you're sort of forwarding all the funds to that, and you're sort of constantly rotating keys like this for security, and it makes it very hard to attack the system. So there is a low level of transactions that constantly occur as a result of the of the REM network naturally progressing without any transactions, without any that's, external transactions. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's a bit of both. So it's definitely that's the way that it works. Um, but what we're actually exploring now is we're seeing transactions happen frequently enough in RenVM that we're pretty convinced that you could actually piggyback off of the external transaction. So when someone sends a Bitcoin into RenVM, you can actually piggyback off that transaction right. to rotate right. the keys at the right. same time. And right. that, that allows you to avoid uh, any excess fees. Right. And how do the nodes find each other? Um, so I'm, so part of a, part, I'm part of 100 for this particular private key that now wants to do a spend. How do I, how do I find the nodes that I need to work with to be able to complete the verification and, and validate the transaction so that it can actually occur on the Bitcoin ledger? So the nodes are required to bond a REN token. And yep. when they do this, they specify a, a public ID. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they can identify each other in the network using that public ID. So you can connect to a node. You can connect to any node in the network and you say, I'm trying to send this piece of information to this public ID and I've encrypted the piece of information for that particular mm -hmm. node. Uh, and that kind of just propagates through the network. And when it gets to that node, the node can decrypt it and, and understand so Does it. that mean that you can only ever store as much as one third of the total bonded REN on the network? So that's an interesting constraint. So the constraint of how much collateral is it safe to keep inside RenVM versus how much bond is right. held within RenVM is actually a little bit more complicated than that. So when you have a one-third threshold, this uh, is the threshold upon which it becomes theoretically profitable to make an attack. So if there's more than one-third of REN bonded, then it's not possible to make a profitable attack because if you were to successfully attack the network uh, and the underlying bonds were to be slashed, then you would actually lose more to the bond slashing than you would have gained from what you could steal from the network. However, as long as there's more REN than there is BTC in the network, then you can always recover the peg, even in the case of theft. So even if an adversary comes along and is like, oh, well, it's actually profitable to perform an attack, so I will. Yeah. And if they happen to pull that off, maybe they're walking away with some profit, but the network is still able to recover because it can use the REN that it has under its... Uh, uh, in the network to sort of buy back any of the lost Bitcoin and, and burn it out of existence to stabilize the Got peg it. again. Got it. And in, so, in addition to that, um, there's actually also the, there's actually two signatures involved everywhere. So we talk about it kind of from the perspective of a private key and it's a decentralized custodian because it's the easiest way to understand it. But there's actually always two keys at play. There's one that's held by the entire network in this fully decentralized fashion. And then there's one that's held by what we call the gray core, which is a decentralized group that's actually voted in and so they're actually staking their reputation. So you have to be able to corrupt both of these systems. So mm. it's not as simple as just saying, well, you know, I've got, there's more than one th third of REN value inside the network, so I can make an attack and I can make profit. Because mm -hmm. you'd also have to convince members of the Grey Corps to sacrifice their reputation in order to, con you know, do this attack with you. And when um, you say reputation, you mean actually identified people and yes, companies. Yes, that's right. Yeah. right. So the right. idea is that these groups are voted in uh, to the gray core. So the general community of dark nodes and, and rent holders will be able to vote 
these members into the grade core. And so obviously you have to know who they are. Um, and so to begin with, we're starting with groups, obviously like Ren itself. Uh, we've got Synapse Capital, we've got Polychain, we've got uh, Curve Finance. And so these you know, groups are well-known in the industry. And if, mm. if uh, something was to be stolen, not only would they be sacrificing the value of you know, the Bitcoin that was potentially stolen, mm -hmm. but also their own networks. Mm -hmm. And so once you start to accrue those, you can start to see that actually it, it's very uh, improbable that you'd be able to actually successfully attack the system. Im so improbable that it actually becomes more worthwhile attacking Bitcoin itself. And that's kind of the threshold. If you're mm. comfortable with the security of Bitcoin, then you should be comfortable with the security of RenVM. The idea is to try and make RenVM practically harder to attack than Bitcoin itself. And then you don't really have to worry about it as a user. Super interesting. So last question, and it's a completely different field. Uh, yield farming. What is it? How does it work? And how is Ren involved? <laughs> yeah, so um, Ren launched right into the yield farming craze. Um, so <laughs> what, what yield farming is, is basically by using a platform, you can generate revenue, right? So um, the, the darling example of this is Compound. So mm. by lending and borrowing assets from Compound, you can generate comp tokens and comp tokens have uh, quite a large value. I think it puts the, um, I think it's something where somewhere between two to $3 billion is what kind of the implied compound value based on the comp token. Mm -hmm. So you're sort of farming these comp tokens just by using the platform. Uh, and this can be not too difficult to game. Mm. And so where RenVM really comes into this is that people really want WBTC because they can put it into compound and they can get comp tokens for it, or they can put it into balancer and they can get bal tokens. Uh, you know, you can do all sorts of crazy stuff with mm. um, WBTC. And there's also a RenBTC pool on Curve where you can deposit your tokens there. You get back uh, staking tokens and you can take those staking tokens and you can put them into synthetics and you get synthetics rewards uh, and you get RenVM rewards that we're sort of currently putting in there to help incentivize uh, usage. And so just by using these systems and sort of like, plugging them in together, you can kind of stack up all of these different rewards and all this different yield. And so people are, you know, uh, trying to mint RenBTC so they can access these rewards. Uh, and they're also trying to mint RenBTC because it's the easiest way to get WBTC, which they can get the, then go to Compound to get rewards there. <laughs> Got it. And what, what is it that you are, like, what's the benefit to Ren for doing that, for, for incentivizing that? Usage. Yeah, so um, obviously liquidity uh, begets more liquidity. So by incentivizing this to happen, and, and actually we, we didn't anticipate uh, the uh, comp yield farming to happen mm. at the same time. That was a, a happy coincidence. Um, but as it turns out, if you want to yield farm using Bitcoin, that by far and away the easiest way to do that is to go through RenVM and, and get your Bitcoin through RenVM um, and then use that on Ethereum to yield farm. Uh, and the benefit for RenVM is that it gets a small fee every time Bitcoin moves back and forth between two of the chains. Super interesting. So um, if people want to find out more about you or about Ren uh, or about Ren yield farming, where do they go? How do they find out? Um, either come to our Telegram, um, which is called Ren Project, or follow us on Twitter, which is called Ren Protocol, or follow myself on Twitter, uh, BZLWANG. BZLWANG. That's right. Okay. Yeah. The, Z, the ZL stands for my name and the B is a mystery to be discovered. <laughs> well, Long, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. It was enjoyable.